Lord, for ourselves this morning as we look in your word, I pray that your spirit would be present so that we each hear what you want us to. We know that your words are truth itself and that your spirit is the spirit of truth. We confess without your interaction, though we're still unable to absorb this, but make us like a sponge and your truth like water. Help us to be filled up with what you have to say to each one of us. In Jesus' name, amen. Kathy had a college teacher who taught Shakespeare, one of Kathy's favorite classes and favorite teachers, and we were talking about this just yesterday, as a matter of fact. The teacher said that Shakespeare was her second Bible, that she read her Bible and she read her Shakespeare. And the reason, I think, in large measure that she put Shakespeare right underneath the Bible was because of the incisive way he writes about human condition and human character in the stories, whether they're tragedies or comedies. I confess I'm no huge Shakespeare student. Most of you have probably read more Shakespeare plays than I have. I liked his sonnets. One of his plays, one of the tragedies, and I'm not a big tragedy fan, period, but one of his tragedies is Othello. And before we get into our text this morning, let me tell you the story of Othello briefly. Othello is a Moor. He's black, African, and he's a very, very competent general, commander of armies. So leading the army of Venice, he has helped defeat their enemies and helped them remain free and prosperous. And he's the key general for the city of Venice. He marries Desdemona, this lovely, attractive, pure, radiant daughter of one of the leading citizens of Venice. There's other issues around that, but he marries just this flower of delight. Among those who wait on him or serve him, he has a faithful lieutenant, Cassio, And he also has someone a little lower down on the ladder named Iago. I thought that was just a funny name until I read the play, you know, Iago. But anyway, Iago is miffed with his leader, Othello, because Othello chose Cassio, someone he thought inferior in his own eyes, instead of him to become his right-hand man. And the whole play, the whole tragedy is Iago manipulating the people around him to get what he wants. Two things, he wants revenge against Othello and he wants to honor or elevate himself. He wants revenge and he wants honor. And he goes about this process by shrewd questions, subtle manipulations, half-truths, and in some cases, blatant lies. That's what he does. That's the whole story. He speaks to each one of these individuals, and he manipulates his words in such a way that they believe something that is not true. And because they do, and because they don't go back to the source and verify that what he says is true, because they believe him, And because he makes his words seem plausible, they believe him instead of what is true. And this is why it becomes a tragedy, because based on his words and his 
subtleties and his manipulations and his blatant lies, he gets Othello to murder his own wife, his spotless, devoted, faithful wife. Othello commits suicide himself, takes his own life at the end of the story, based on the same thing. Two people attached to Iago himself, he kills, Iago kills by his own hand, Rodrigo and his wife, Amelia. So all this comes out because this character, this evil, plotting, conniving character, tells subtle shades of lies, making them plausible, or blatant lies in some cases, and people believe him, make decisions based on that, and tragedy results because death follows all of these decisions and all of these actions. And with that as a lead-in, I want to go this morning back to Genesis 3. I told you we'd come back here. When we were in our series that we just finished, Building Your Life on the Rock, regarding obedience, we looked at Genesis 3. It was my intention to come back here when we talked about faith. But frankly, there was so much to go over that there was no way to accommodate that in one Sunday. So I've set that aside just for this morning. But in Genesis 3... As we read through Genesis 3, I just want you to keep in mind that tragic story of Othello. It's a tragedy, meaning it ends in death of all the major participants, and death comes because people are believing things that aren't true. They're believing lies instead of the truth, and based on the lies, they make decisions which in the end bring death. I'm actually going to start at Genesis 2 and read uh, verses 16 and 17. Just to put this in setting, remember, this is the end of the creation story. God has gone through the days of creation. Everything's created. Adam and Eve are now created. And in chapter 2, verse 16, the Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely. Any tree you may eat freely, but... From the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat it you shall surely die. The whole garden, eat anything you want except one. Don't eat it. If you do, you'll die. Chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, you shall not eat from any tree in the garden. The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it, lest you die. The serpent said to the woman, You surely shall not die. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. She gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. Now, remember from the verses in chapter 2, 
Eve was likely not present when God told Adam, eat from any tree except this one, to eat it is to die. But Eve would have heard from Adam, we've got every tree in the gardens ours, we can have anything we want, just not from that tree, we're not to eat it, or we'll die. That much, for sure, Eve would have known. Now, the serpent, who's identified elsewhere in Scripture as Satan, in fact, in Revelation, he's called that serpent from of old, Satan, Satan comes in, and just like Iago, he uses a combination of, well, we'll see here, four things, but he shades the truth in some ways, and he tells outright lies in others to get Eve to believe him instead of God. And we'll go through these one at a time. Look at the first thing he does right in verse 1, one word, Indeed, has God said. Indeed, has he said. His first thing, he doesn't just come out and say, God's a liar and you should believe me and not him. He's, He's laying the groundwork. He'll get to blatant lies later, but he lays the groundwork here by just insinuating something. And all he does to begin this process is, is say, Indeed, has God said that? This is like, I can't believe God said that. Do you, do you mean to tell me he said that? I, it's incredulous. It's unbelievable. Surely not. For the very first word out of his mouth, it's not true or false in itself. It's just meant to begin the process of her doubting what God said. I can't believe he said that. Are you sure you heard him right? Maybe there's a mistake. Indeed, has he really said that? So the first temptation to Eve has nothing to do with a blatant lie. It's just to begin her questioning. Did I really hear? Did he really say? Did he really forbid? Etc. And it's as simple as just saying, indeed. Indeed. This is how it starts. Has he really said that? Sometimes you and I will think to ourselves, surely what God said, surely he didn't really mean that. Um, Have you talked to people before, especially if they're not Christians, and if they know that the Bible says something, they're shaking their heads. It doesn't really mean that, does it? That's kind of the thought here. Surely God couldn't mean it the way you say or the way you think. He doesn't stop there before he gets to lies. Look at the second thing he does in the same verse, chapter 3, verse 1. Satan says, Indeed, has God said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden. God had made this clear to Adam. He says, Adam, the whole thing's in front of you. Take whatever you want. Just one exception. Only one. Not from that one tree. Satan knows what God said. But listen to what he says here. Did God really tell you you can't eat from any tree in the garden? From any tree in the garden? He goes by inferring he can't believe God's restricted them in any way. To hear saying God's restricted them not from one tree, but from every tree. Do you see every temptation here is to get them to doubt God's goodness and his word? First, I can't believe that he restricted you. And second, I can't believe he's cut you off from every good tree in this garden. Every tree. Of course, this is a temptation by exaggeration. This isn't what God said, was it? God did not refuse them every tree. He refused them one. But here, Satan goes, it's not just one, it's every tree. And it's not, she knew this wasn't true. 
But it's this process of doubt again. It's the second seed of doubt. Gosh, can I really believe he said that? Can I really believe I heard him right? And here it's, did he really restrict me from everything? All the focus becomes on this one tree, this one restriction. Probably for every one of us in our own life, we've gone through a time where there's only one thing we really wanted. And God's a low down, no good, whatever, because he won't give us that one thing we want. We've determined life is represented by that one tree, that one apple, that one thing. It might be, I want to get married and I'm not. God's a low down, no good, double dealer, because I want to be married and I'm not. Or it might be, I just need to make $10,000 more a year and I'd be happy. Or it could be, I just need one good friend. Or I just need a little respect. Or I just need a better job. Or fill in the blank. I mean, all of us in our life, we go through situations where we become fixed on one thing. And when we become fixed on that one thing, it's just like Eve here. It's as if Satan's telling you and I, God's refused you every good thing. And God may be saying, you know, for right now, you don't get that spouse or that job or that money or whatever. And it's not in your best interest at this point to have it anyway. But for us, the one tree, the one fruit, the one thing, it becomes everything. And Satan's saying, God's withholding everything from you. He's not giving you one thing. Because he's withholding only one thing. We jump. There's this, any tree in the garden? You don't get any tree? I can't believe it. And that's where we go. And that's... Just picture yourself in those situations. Isn't that what you say to yourself? Or isn't that the thought you hear in your mind? That one thing becomes all of life. I know this is true for me. And Satan, this is the second seed of doubt. God's withholding every good thing from you because you don't get that one tree, that one fruit. Look at the third thing he does. He's laid the groundwork here. It's just, he's just got to get you off balance just a little bit. It's just to begin the process, the doubts. Did he really say it? Did he really mean it? And he's withholding everything from you? Look at the third thing in verse 4. Satan moves from doubt and suspicion to outright denial. Satan says, you will not die. Eve says, God told us that we'll die. Satan says, oh no, you won't die. Now he has just called God a liar. He has just said that God's word is a fabrication and is not true. What God told you is absolutely false. You won't die if you eat from that tree. And see, this is where it gets black and white. Shades of gray, we start thinking, you know, sometimes we entertain the thoughts, did I really hear God? Does his word really mean that? Is life really reduced to, I can't have this, or I only get that, or whatever. This is where it gets a little little more black and white. You will not die. God's lying to you, and what what he has withheld from you isn't death, it's really life. He's lying, you won't die. This is outright denial that God's word is true. You know, for Eve, I'm not sure what went through her her mind at that moment, but when you and I read newspapers, watch television, listen to music, etc., 
how many programs or articles, how many things you and I see in the culture around us don't do the same thing that say, you can do whatever you want and you won't die. It really won't happen that way. Um, if you look, uh, one example, um, this goes way back, this shows my age, but you know the sexual revolution of the 60s. See, this was you can have all the sex you want in every form you want and you won't die. There's no death in it. You know, God, uh, sex like the apple tree, it's got a fence around it. God says, I'll bless it within these constraints and not otherwise. It brings death. Sin brings death otherwise. But that era, Satan's lie at the time, was you won't die. But if you catalog what has happened, transpired in this country since the 60s, since the country in, in large part bought into this lie, you won't die, Uh, We have uh, killed a million and a half of our own children almost every year since this happened. And if you just look at statistics related to divorce, abortion, crime, uh, you name it, on any of the important social uh, issues that you can catalog, uh, we've died over and over and over again as a culture. But we said, Satan said, you won't die. And we said, gosh, I believe him. And then we just look back at the fruit. And it's been a ton of death, a dump load, a dump truck load of death since. Satan says to Eve, Eve, you won't die. He's lying to you. And our culture has said the same thing. Look at verse 5. Satan says not only a blatant rejection of what God has said is true, but look at verse 5. He said, you will be like God. Not only will you not die, you'll actually get something that God's withholding from you. God really does not have your best interest at heart. By withholding that tree from you, he really he doesn't want you to be like him. He really doesn't want what's best for you. So not only will you not die, but when you disobey him, you'll really get something that's really good. You'll be like God, and you'll know good from evil. Now, this, this actually, there's a truth element in this. Uh, they absolutely will die, and they absolutely do die, spiritually at the moment, physically later, no, no question. But part of what he said was true. They do know good from evil because they've, they're evil. Because they didn't trust a God who was only good and they chose to believe Satan instead of a God who can't lie. They know evil because they chose evil. So that much was true. It was true. He just didn't didn't tell them what was being withheld. Death was being withheld from them. And you know, when you and I face those temptations in our life, just like Eve, it's the same thing we think And we buy into this, and I think we talked about this related to faith or obedience. For us, there's value when we disobey. You know, when you spend money, you spend money because you think there's value. You're getting something that's desirable. So when we disobey, we are not only believing that we won't die, we're believing that we're going to get something good, whatever whatever situation it is. Uh, If I steal that thing and no one finds out, I won't die. And I'll really get something good. But of course, I'm harming my own soul. I'm bringing death to my own soul. But I'm telling myself, I won't die and I'll get something that's desirable. I'll get something of value. So when we disobey, we're doing the same things. We're believing a lie 
that we won't die, the thing we do won't bring death, and it will actually bring life, some kind of positive, something of value. And of course, to some degree it does. There's a certain pleasure to certain kinds of sins that we do, certainly. But death comes with it. That's the deal. That's the rub. That's the hook. Death comes with it. So there was a truth element in this. You'll be like God. They were like God in that they knew good from evil because they had themselves chosen evil and aligned themselves with Satan. And in this temptation, Satan was substituting something. God was, God was keeping them from death. Satan substituted something and said, you'll actually get a benefit from this, not death, and they believed him. And so they died. Uh, think of Satan in the garden. You know, this is odd. You're going through the creation story, and everything's good. And in fact, when Satan's introduced here, this is the first mention of him. And you know, you've got to go to texts that are given centuries later to, to have more theology about who this serpent is, who Satan is, and what he's like. You can go to passages in Ezekiel or Isaiah, New Testament, Revelation, certainly to fill this out. But we don't know much about except this serpent. And actually, the Hebrew can mean the shining one. There's a lot to this story that we don't know, but this shining one, this creature comes and he twists and perverts the truth. And, and go back to Othello for just a minute. You remember, Iago feels scorned. He wants to hurt the one who is his authority. And he wants to do so by, excuse me, and he wants to elevate himself. And he wants to do both by hurting the one in authority, hurting those around him, and gaining honor for himself. And just read that back into, read Iago or Othello back into Genesis, they are essentially the same thing. I don't know if Shakespeare's intent was to paint a caricature of the devil in Othello, but that's certainly effectively what Iago is. And here is Satan, we know from other texts that he has been, he has lost his position of honor in heaven. He has been scorned, so to speak, by God, and he wants revenge. And he wants to elevate himself. And he takes the same plan that Iago does. He's going to get revenge on God by harming those around God, his creatures, Adam and Eve. And he's going to elevate himself in the doing. And this is the same thing. So when you read Othello next time, or if you see the movie, think of this. These are so interchangeable. These reflect so much on each other. I think it's quite remarkable. But it's the same thing. I'm going to get even with that God who threw me down, who doesn't give me the honor I want, and I'm going to do it by hurting him, by hurting those around him. And in all of that, I'm going to honor myself. I'm going to elevate myself. That's behind all of this. He's willing to do anything to anyone to harm God and elevate himself. And you know, I kept thinking as I read Othello, when Iago sees the pain that he's brought into these people's lives, he'll relent. But he doesn't. He doesn't to the end. And Satan's not a nice guy either. And he doesn't relent. And it doesn't matter how much pain he's able to get you to accept into your life. He doesn't relent. He's not a nice guy. He has no leaf to turn. It's just more the same. It's more death. Jesus says this, 
of the Pharisees in John 8:44, he says to them, you are of your father the devil. You want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning. That's who, we, that's who we're dealing with. The enemy of our soul is a murderer. He doesn't stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. The one who is your antagonist and mine, he's a murderer and a liar and the father of lies. So whether the temptation that you hear in your mind or see on the TV or read in the article or hear from your friend is the subtle kind like, did he really say that? Are you sure you heard him right? Is he withholding every good thing from you? Or it's the blatant thing. You won't die. You can do whatever you want. It won't bring death. Or God's holding out the best from you. You need to reach out and take it, and then you'll get what's good. It doesn't matter what shade, if it's black and white or if it's subtle. It's the same thing. It's Iago planning death. It's Satan. All he brings is murder and death. And when we're listening to these subtleties or to the black and white denials of truth, this is where we're going. He's plunging the sword in and we're helping him when we go down this road, when we follow our mother, Eve, when we listen to Iago's lies, that's where we're going. Our life becomes the tragedy because there's death at the end. That's all that we can have. This is in contrast to God and his character. You remember in our story in Genesis 1 and 2, God says of everything he made, it was good. It was good. It was good. In fact, when it says of man that he doesn't have Eve yet, it's the first thing that God says it's not good. So he gives Eve to Adam. And then at the end of it all, he says it's very good. Everything God does for you and I is very good. Remember we said he's the God who's only good and he can't lie. This is why faith is so important. When we believe him, we're believing in God who only has our good at heart and who can't lie. So we can't lose when we believe him or trust him. In contrast to Satan, who's a murderer and the father of lies. Let me run you through briefly another temptation story. This is the second temptation story, if you will. This is in Luke's Gospel in chapter 4. This isn't in a garden. It's in a desert. And it's not with all the good things in the world around you to eat, around Adam and Eve. It's with nothing to eat. It's during 40 days of fasting and privation. When Jesus, as the second Adam, goes through his temptation, he hears the same things Eve hears. He faces the same subtleties or outright denials that Eve heard. Same Same story, same kind of a story, a little different response. In Luke 4, verse 1, Jesus has just been baptized. He's obeyed his Father, and his public ministry is beginning right here. And his public ministry begins with a test, just like Adam and Eve in the garden. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan, that's where he was baptized, and was led about by the Spirit in the wilderness. No garden for him. For 40 days being led about, being tempted by the devil. The temptation wasn't just at the end of the 40 days. It was the whole time. He ate nothing during those days. And when they had ended, he became hungry. And the devil said to him, 
if. Indeed, just like Genesis 3, indeed, if you are the Son of God, tell the stone to become bread. Jesus, are you really sure you know who you are? Now, he doesn't say you're not God the Son or you're not the Son of God. He just says, if you're God. This isn't a blatant rejection of truth. This is just a subtle offer to consider a different option. Jesus, are you sure you know who you are? Because I'm not sure. So if you really are the Son of God, then why don't you just turn these stones into bread? Just subtle. Now, Jesus will not turn stones to bread later, but he'll make food. John 5 and 6 and the other gospel stories. He makes bread. And this was intentional to do this later because he shows that just like God fed the Jews in the wilderness, he, God the Son on earth, would feed Israel also. But here, it wasn't time for him to make bread out of stones. And he knew that. And he doesn't bite on the subtlety of convincing himself, reassuring himself that he really knows who he is. But listen to what he does say. Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone. To this offer by Satan to confirm his own identity, in his own mind, Satan sowing the seed of doubt, Jesus doesn't say anything to him except one statement from the Bible, from the Old Testament, from God's word in Deuteronomy. I don't know if you noticed back in Genesis 3, when Eve's response to Satan at one point, she says, if we eat it or we touch it, we'll die. God had never said that. And I don't believe Adam ever said that. But because she was already doubting, she added to what God had said. God didn't say touch it. He said, if you eat it, you'll die. Jesus has this very, very brief answer. He just says it's written, man doesn't live on bread alone. And he leaves it. And that's it. That's the end of the temptation. He quotes one line from the Bible and he rests. And that's it. The temptation's over. The door's closed. He just basically says, Satan, I'm not going there. God has said that things are more important than bread. And it's his word. And it's over. Look at verse 5. He, Satan, led Jesus up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. The devil said to him, I'll give you all this domain in its glory, for it has been handed over to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you worship before me, it shall be yours. Understand a couple things. When Adam sinned, he, in essence, gave the rulership of this world to Satan. God had given it to Adam. Adam, in effect, handed it over to Satan when he chose to believe and follow him. So Jesus doesn't say the world isn't yours to give. It is his in a, in a short term, in a conditional sense. The world is Satan's. In fact, it says that repeatedly throughout the New Testament, the God of this world, the God that runs this world, the kingdom of darkness. Satan does control, in a little sense, this world. So Jesus doesn't, uh, doesn't say it's not yours to give. And also remember that as God, God the Son on earth, Jesus in a sense, in a legitimate sense, desires the worship of the world. And he will get it one day. But it just it wasn't to be this way and it wasn't to be at this time. So when he responds to this temptation, 
he does the same thing he did the first time. He quotes one line of scripture in verse 8. It is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Now just notice this about the temptation and the reply. The temptation is for Jesus to get worship. His reply says nothing about worship. He doesn't even go that extra step. He just says, God's word says that you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. I like that because it's, uh, in my mind, it's like this. The fence says, the fence is you, you worship God only. I don't need to worry what's outside the fence because I stop at the fence. You're offering me this glory and it's related to worshiping you. Well, I don't worry about the glory you're offering me because the fence says I stop at worshiping God only. Do you know how much this would keep us from? The temptations we face about all those things we can set our mind or our affection or our hearts on. And if we would just come back inside the fence, we'd say, no, well, God says don't do this. So that's not even an option. That's not a consideration. I don't even entertain the notion because the fence of God says don't commit adultery or don't lust or honor your parents, whatever. Don't steal. Whatever. So I don't worry about what disobedience would give me. I don't go there. I stopped at the fence. So I don't worry about anything beyond that. I can stay simple. My life is simplified because that's where I'm stopping. Jesus quotes one line of scripture. He doesn't even get into the issue of worship and the worlds that will legitimately be his. He just says, no, you worship God and him only. And this temptation is over too. Look at verse 9. Satan led Jesus to Jerusalem and he had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here. Now here he gets clever. He's a little creative. I admire this. For it is written. Satan says, Jesus, you're quoting scripture. I can go there too. Jesus, it is written, he will give his angels charge concerning you to guard you and on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. Scripture did say this straight out of the Psalms. Absolutely. Probably also meant primarily to, to uh, refer to Jesus himself. This is creative. Good writer. Quick thinking. But there's a problem, of course. It's the application. And you know, 2 Corinthians talks about uh, Satan appearing as an angel of light. No wonder if his servants also appear as angels of light. You know, he can wear a religious hat and quote scripture, or he can play the drunk in the sewer. Either way, it doesn't matter. He's comfortable in both roles or anything in between. The garb he puts on doesn't matter. It's just, it's death that he's after. And so, and it's harming God and God's creatures, you and I, and feeling elevated himself. That's the deal. So, you know, the fact that someone quotes scripture is meaningless. I, I hope you know that. You know, there's lots of servants of Satan who quote scripture. And there's lots of people who teach in churches in this city and around this country and the world who I have no doubt are totally unsaved. And they are, in effect, servants of Satan, but they read from the Bible. That's in itself is meaningless. Satan quotes the scripture and he knows it at least as well as you and I do. He doesn't believe it, though. You know, some people think if he can read, he knows how the story ends. He does, but he doesn't believe it. And you know, when you follow him, you fall into the same insanity 
A God who can't lie doesn't lie. If God says what Satan's end is and Satan still thinks he can change that and God is omnipotent, has all power and can't lie, do you see the insanity behind this? He is at some very basic level insane. And when you and I believe his lies, we follow him in insanity. It's irrational. This is why I said related to faith. Faith is the most logical, consistent, rational thing you can ever do to believe God. Satan is in himself, in his sin, he is blind and insane. And we become like him when we follow him. So he's clever and he's creative here. And he says, hey, why don't you do this because, and he quotes these psalms to Jesus. Jesus answered and said to him, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. I'm not concerned with impressing you, Satan. You're telling me to test God by throwing myself down and see if he'll honor me by, obeying, by doing these scriptures. And he says, I'm not going there. I don't test God. God tests me. I don't put him to the test. He puts me to the test. And in fact, in this very temptation, God was allowing Jesus to be put to the test. This wasn't to test God the Father. This was to test Jesus the Son. And we're not here to test God and to see if he's credible or to see if he'll really keep his word. He tests us. And he allows the situations you and I face in life to test us. We're not here to test him. Temptation ends the same way when Jesus quotes one line of Scripture. Do you see, for every temptation, he begins and ends on simply quoting what God has said. Part of the interesting thing about this temptation is this. When Jesus goes through this trial in the desert being tempted by Satan, he does not use anything you and I don't have. He didn't use anything Eve didn't have in the Garden of Eden. She had God's word. And she didn't use it. And she didn't begin and end her resistance to temptation on it. She had the same thing. You and I have exactly the same opportunity and ability to pass the tests that come into our life because we have exactly the same resource and exactly the same spirit that led Jesus in the wilderness and the same scriptures of truth. And this is, the, this is the case for you and I when we're faced with temptation. It's to acknowledge that what God has said is true and it's to, that's, that's our fence, that's our line, that's our refuge, that's our victory, or our safe haven out of the temptation. What God has said is true. I'm not going there. I'm not going to believe the lie because I'm not going there. I know what God has said. I know what God has said is true. I know God is good, so I don't have to worry about all that other stuff. I don't think about all the things I could have if only I would disobey. I'm not going to disobey. So Jesus, for us, normally we're not fasting for 40 days. We're not in the wilderness by ourselves. His test was made, in essence, as difficult as it could be. He's starving at the end of 40 days. This is the absolute opposite of the garden temptation scene. They had everything. One prohibition. Jesus has nothing in this temptation scene. And many prohibitions. And it's, and it's his display is for us to say we can do the same thing. 
we can do the same thing. Othello is a tragedy because the characters in it listen to the liar and basing their decisions on lies, they give into the temptation to believe what's not true. They make their decisions based on it and it all ends up in death. And you and I have our own Iago and he's the demon on your shoulder. Sometimes he's a friend who says something to you, speaking through your friend or the television show, or the book, or the magazine, or sometimes just the thoughts that rise out of our own heart, or out of our own fallen nature. But when we listen to that, whether it's subtle or blatant, you can absolutely count, if you follow Othello or Adam and Eve, you're going to death. Your life, that part of your life, is a tragedy. It's not what you want to read, and it's not what you want to live. Jesus in the wilderness, all he does is say, God has said thus. And he quotes a scripture. And that's the beginning and the end of his resistance. And you and I have exactly the same resource. So whatever the temptation is, if it's subtle, if it's black and white, if it's in your face or if it's a gentle whisper, this is where we need to live. God has said. You know, the difficulty for many of us is... If we don't know what he said, it's pretty hard to bring out that scripture that would be helpful at the time. This is just another argument. It's another good reason to be in your Bible. You know, I do know that it's possible to read your Bible every day. The Pharisees in the New Testament had most of the Old Testament memorized. Most of them did. Had it memorized. They quoted it, just like Satan. They could quote it, but they weren't regenerate. They didn't belong to God. I'm not saying that reading your Bible makes you holy. But it's the truth of the scripture embraced and believed that does give you freedom. And that is the means of delivery from the temptations we face. Then you're not living a tragedy. You know, Jesus' life looked tragic on one hand. I mean, if, you, if we said, here's a single guy who never gets married, hangs out with these low life on the wrong side of the tracks, Galilee, dies young, what a loser. I mean, it sounds like a lousy story. And at one level it is. But you know, he knew that God said, I won't allow your soul to remain in the grave. And I'll cause you to rise from the dead. In fact, it's great when you read Isaiah 53 and 54. Isaiah 53 says, who has declared his generation? That is, he has no children, he has no posterity. And Isaiah 54 says, more are the children of the barren woman than she who gave birth. You know, the the great thing for us is that even out of what looks like absolute death, if God's in it, there's life. In time and or in eternity, but there's life. You can't lose. When you listen to Iago, when we buy into Satan... There's murder and death coming. When we stand with Jesus, whatever our wilderness looks like, whatever the temptations are, and we say, God says, and therefore this is where I'm going, this is what I believe, we get life. We get the experience of life here in our relationship with God himself. We get the blessings he gives us in life that he really means for us to have. And then we get these rewards that Paul says can't even be compared to what we know or experience here on earth in the future. There's no way to lose. There's no way to lose. 
So the next time you hear that little whisper, did God really mean that? Did he really mean what he said? Should I really do the right thing here? Or couldn't I hedge just this once in this little thing? Or God's really out to get me because he won't give me that one little thing that I want. You know, remember Iago. Remember Othello. Remember it's a tragedy. And don't go there. Go with Jesus. What has God said? Go that far. Don't add to it. Don't take away from it. Begin and end your resistance right there. Temptation comes. It comes to us all. The tests come. It's a given. It's just when they come, what do we do? Who do we trust? Who do we, do we believe? Are we going to live a tragedy or are we going to get life? We're making the choice. Let's pray. Lord, I'm thankful for a story like Othello because it rings so true. Lord, we each face temptations to doubt your goodness, to doubt your word. God, give us the wisdom, the fidelity, the faithfulness of your Son to begin and end our resistance to temptation, to believe Satan's lies on your word, on your trustworthiness, on your character, and on what you've said is true. Lord, each of us has areas in life where at one time or another we feel unblessed or unloved. Help us to give our sense of loss or hurt to you. Father, help each of us to find the place of blessing, the things you mean to bless us with. Help us to silence the whispers of the enemy by the truth of your word. Lord, I know that your will is life and goodness. Help us to remember that. Help us to see your Son. Fill us with your Spirit and with your word of truth, Lord. Help us to face the temptations and the trials of life with the armor that is your word. In Jesus' name, amen.